This is the second sermon from this passage. Uh, we looked at the four friends uh, last week who tore a hole in the roof, and we were urged to similarly uh, be people of faith. Let nothing hinder us from following the Lord Jesus and being about His business. We'll continue looking at this passage after we pray. Let's go to the Lord. Father, I do ask that uh, You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to obey. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, oftentimes, the most tame Bible passages conceal explosive dynamite that is ready to explode uh, right in our midst. And this is certainly the case with this passage. On the surface, it's a nice text about four friends helping their poor, helpless, paralyzed friend uh, to get around a crowd by going through a roof in order that their friend might meet Jesus. And upon seeing their faith, Jesus said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And in this simple and wonderful statement, this passage blows up upon us. Jesus is addressing this man whom he has never met, Yet he accuses this poor, helpless, paralyzed man of being a sinner in need of forgiveness. Well, that's not very polite, accusing him to be a sinner. Actually, God accuses all of us of being sinners. The Bible is very clear about that, uh, that assertion. So then... The question is, what does it mean to be a sinner? Generally, people think of sin as a conscious, voluntary act of breaking God's commands. At one level, that's not a bad definition of sin. But it does not do justice to the, full, to the Bible's full definition of sin. The Bible says that in Adam's first sin, the entire human race was cursed. It's a curse that not only hangs over us, but is applied to each and every one of us. We came under God's judgment, and our entire nature was affected by the deforming presence of sin. So it's this original sin that causes us to commit the conscious, voluntary act of breaking God's commandments. In other words... We are not inherently good people who mess up every now and again by choosing to sin against God. Rather, we are inherently sinful people who do what sinners do. What do sinners do? We sin against God. In fact, apart from God's grace operating in our life, apart from God's grace regenerating us, apart from God's grace waking us from spiritual death, we are incurable, incurable. We are 
we are sick and can't be cured <laughs> when it comes to uh, our um, hatred of seeking and serving God. Am I being too harsh? Am I going beyond what the Bible says? Very quickly, listen to a couple of passages. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. When's there time for a good thought? When's there time, rather, for a God-honoring thought? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 4.18. The Apostle Paul says that people who are outside of Jesus Christ are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. The problem is not a lack of information. The ignorance flows out of the hardness of their hearts. Our sin flows out of the fact that the Bible says that we are, by nature, sinners. And that we are controlled, that we are um, ruled by sin. Unless Jesus Christ has delivered us. We could go through many, 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 many more verses. I dare say we could have hundreds of verses from the Bible describing our sinfulness. The Bible is clear that our sinful condition is not isolated to uh, or limited to isolated instances or, or even patterns of wrongdoing. Our sin is much deeper So Jesus is saying to this poor paralytic that he is a sinner. Otherwise, why would he offer him forgiveness of sins? But Jesus makes this assertion in the process of telling him that his sins are forgiven. So let me ask you, would you be willing to have Jesus call you a sinner in the fullest, deepest Uh, sense of the word in order to hear him say in the same breath that all your sins are forgiven? Would you be willing to humble yourself deeply enough to reckon yourself as deserving God's hot displeasure and judgment in order to hear him declare to you that all your sins have been washed away, wiped away, completely forgiven. To receive God's forgiveness is humiliating to our pride. To to receive God's... um, Or rather, uh, to forgive God's forgiveness means that we are acknowledging that we are sinners deeply in need of God's help. 
it's a recognition that our sin problem is so great that we cannot help ourselves. It's not just a hole that we can dig ourselves out of. It is a sin problem that infinitely separates us from God. God is holy, 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 and we are not. And there's nothing that we can do to help ourselves get into a right condition with God. And so Jesus uses this paralytic as an object lesson to teach us about our own condition as sinners in need of God's forgiveness. This paralytic is a metaphor for the human condition. What could this paralytic do? Nothing. He could just lie there on the mat. This paralyzed man was utterly helpless. He could do nothing to improve himself. He could do nothing to bring himself healing. Likewise, there's nothing we can do to change or improve our sinful nature. We are utterly helpless to help ourselves. Yet we hear all the time people say, well, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. You'll never find it in the Bible. It is the opposite of biblical teaching. The Bible never says it. We can do nothing to change our nature. Only God can bring about a true change in our nature. We are helpless in this area. Again, listen to the Bible's clear teaching about our helplessness. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, As for you, making a blanket statement, as for you, before you came to Christ, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What can a dead person do to help themselves? Nothing. Dead person, here's a million dollars. If you'll just sit up and take this money, you can be rich. They're going to lie there. And they're not going to be able to take, take that money. It's not in the nature, if I may mix the metaphors a little bit, of a dead person to, of themselves, reach up and grab that money no matter how greedy they were before they died. Romans 5, 6, While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ is dying for the ungodly. What are we doing? We're being helpless. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, draws him. We're even utterly helpless to come to God unless he takes the initiative and draws us to himself. No matter how moral, no matter how religious, we are utterly helpless to help ourselves. And so help must come from outside ourselves. And Jesus uses this man as a visual aid to teach us about the utterly, the utter helplessness of our condition apart from Christ. But at the very same moment, he also uses this man to teach us how willing Christ is to help the helpless. Before this paralytic can verbally ask for help, Jesus declares this man's 
to be forgiven. He declares that all your sins are forgiven. Or to take some of the metaphors that uh, God will use in the Old Testament to help us understand what this means. I've used these metaphors before. Uh, The Bible says he tosses our sin behind his back so that he doesn't see our sin anymore. Of course, God doesn't have a back. God doesn't have eyes. God can see everything because he is all-knowing. But it's a metaphor that we can understand because we're human beings. When things are behind our back, we don't have eyes in the back of our heads. Uh, Although I think sometimes my wife does. Um, But uh, typically... We, we, we don't know what's going on behind us. God says that he takes our sins, he throws it on the ground, he stomps on it, he rubs it out, he turns it to dust so that they are no longer in existence. He takes our sins in, in another place, he says he throws them down to the depths of the sea uh, so that they exist no longer. He says in another place, He takes our sins and casts them as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. God who forgets nothing tells us He remembers our sins no more. In other words, God is telling us that in forgiveness of sins, it is a real forgiveness. And he's telling, Jesus is telling this poor paralytic, the moment he shows up in front of Jesus as his friends are letting him down through the roof, says he sees their sins. I'm sorry, he sees uh, their faith. And he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. People are so eager to contribute something to their salvation. If we contribute something to our salvation, what we are doing is we are skirting around the humiliation of recognizing the true depth of our sinful condition. And we'd like to think that we can contribute uh, something to our salvation in order that we can avoid being in the position of helplessness. You know, that means loss of control. We like our control. Our pride likes to think that we have done something, that we can do something. What did the paralytic contribute to God? Nothing. He was helpless. He and his friends simply came to Jesus for help. They knew Jesus could help them. That's why they came to Jesus. They had faith. And their faith was directed to Jesus Christ. And Jesus immediately forgave the man his sins. Do not mistake Jesus' willingness to forgive this man's sins as cheap forgiveness. For God to forgive any of our sins was costly. Jesus had to, he had to go to the cross in order to pay the penalty of the sins that we have committed. He had to spill his blood. He had to die that terrible death in order to stand under the punishment we deserved. But the physical pain and the suffering that led to his death, that was only a small part of the penalty Christ paid. 
While Christ was nailed there to that cross, Jesus endured the unmitigated wrath and anger of God toward our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died once for all. The just for the unjust so that He might bring us to God. Because Christ took our punishment. Our sins are truly and completely forgiven because they were truly and completely paid for before the the, the bar of God's justice. Christ became sin. God punished Christ because of our sin. Punished Him and the penalty was completely paid. That is the only way anyone can receive forgiveness. We live in a, in a time where everybody, it seems, has guilt complexes. You'd think that forgiveness of sins would be the most wonderful thing that our culture, our society has heard. But they reject God's forgiveness in order that they might contribute something to their own salvation. When we are in Jesus Christ, we have been justified. We have been declared righteous by God. And therefore, we are absolutely righteous. You will remember from last week that Jesus was teaching inside this very crowded house. That's why the friends had to let the paralytic down through the the roof. The house was not crowded, surprisingly, with people looking to get healing from Jesus. It appears to me from looking at the text that this house was jam-packed with Pharisees and teachers of the law. Look at verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Well, how many? Three? Five? How many? Well, it tells us, There were Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village in Galilee and villages in Judea and also from Jerusalem. This this house had to have been packed with Pharisees and teachers of the law. And they were not seeking healing from Jesus. They were there to sit in judgment of Him. Look at verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus is here in this living room, I presume, full of scribes or or teachers, Pharisees, and they are all sitting in judgment. And this paralytic is let down in their midst. This is the first time we've encountered the Pharisees and the teachers of law here in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to meet them over and over again from here on out. Uh, They were the religious leaders of Judea. They were very influential because they were very devout in their religious practice. 
And so they wanted to be very careful to keep all the commandments of God. And they came up with an ingenious plan to attempt to do this. Um, Basically, what they did was build a hedge or a wall around the the commandments of God. And so, for instance, and and it would be a, a, a wall of other commandments, of other laws. So you had to climb over this high wall of commandments and laws before you could actually get to the commandment of God and actually break it. You see how that works? It was supposed to be a hedge or a wall of protection. So, for instance, um, the Bible says that they were not to use God's name in vain. So they made a law uh, forbidding anyone from ever speaking God's name at all. Or you weren't supposed to do any work on a Sabbath day. So they made all these laws uh, limiting the number of steps that you could take uh, or what you could do or not do because you didn't want to inadvertently uh, do work on the Lord's Day. And so they built all these, these extra laws to protect themselves from outwardly breaking a commandment. That's why Jesus told them on one, one occasion, you blind guides... You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. In that same context, he told them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. These were the, relig- these were the most religiously devout people. People who had uh, protections built up so that they wouldn't break the law. And here's Jesus calling them hypocrites. He says, For you light." For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's uh, bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the point I was making earlier. We don't like... The humility of confessing that we are sinners. We don't mind saying, well, I mess up every now and then. I sin against God every, uh, every, every so often. But to say that I am corrupt on the inside, that I am a sinner, that I sin because I am a sinner, well, that's, that's humbling, that's humiliating. And so Jesus is making this same point to the religious leaders of their day. Being religious, being outwardly mobile, being a good person cannot change your nature. They kept themselves from outwardly breaking God's commandments. But they were trying unsuccessfully to skirt around the humiliation of recognizing the true depth of their sinful condition. So here they were, sitting in judgment upon Jesus in all their pompous self-righteousness. I believe that Jesus told this paralytic that his sins were forgiven specifically to upset the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's as if Jesus said to them, if you're going to sin in ju- or if you're going to sit in judgment of me, 
then I'm going to give you something to judge. Jesus came to be our righteousness. Therefore, He upsets the apple cart of our attempts to be righteous without Him. If you are here this morning and you are living in your nicely built moral house or your finely built religious sanctuary, Jesus came to tear down your house. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, when they heard Jesus say to this man, your sins are forgiven, they were scandalized. Who is this that blasphemes? Who can forgive sin but God alone? These men were sitting in the same room as the Savior of the world. As the only Savior of sinners. But they might as well have been sitting on the other side of the world. They were as far away from being able to receive Christ as humanly possible. Because they were unwilling to humble themselves, to reckon themselves, to be as helpless as that paralytic. To reckon themselves as being as sinners in need of forgiveness. So Jesus asked them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up? And walk. I can remember being a new Christian and reading this passage and being so perplexed. Okay, which is easier? I can remember counting the words. Your sins are forgiven you. Five words. Rise and walk. Three words. Well, it would be easier to say rise and walk, but he didn't say that. It would be so he he said, Your sins are forgiven you. So he seems to say that this is easier. Why is this easier? I wasn't too bright uh, as a, uh, a reader of Scripture, and God was able to save me anyway. God's Word is clear and powerful. I, of course, that's not what Jesus was saying. He wasn't telling us to, to, to count letters or words. Rather, He is saying that it is easier to tell the man his sins are forgiven because it can't be verified. You know, I could say, you know, all... Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example. I'll just pass. Um, but just to, you know, make all kinds of claims that can't be verified. You should have seen that 10-pound bass I caught when I was 10 years old. There were no cameras around. See, there was no way to evaluate whether or not the the paralyzed man had really been forgiven. But for Jesus to tell the man, rise up and walk, well, that was more difficult because it was verifiable. You know, if Jesus told the man to rise up and walk and the paralytic remained on the mat, then Jesus would be shown to be a fraud. So in verse 24, Jesus said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And of course the man immediately picked up his bed and went home rejoicing and glorifying God. The point that we must see is that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is the only way to receive forgiveness of sins. Uh, 
He's the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. This whole sermon has been one great appeal uh, to run away from your self-righteousness and to flee to Jesus Christ. He's our only source of righteousness. I hope you can see that that is clear. And I know many of you here this morning are listening to this sermon as Christians, and you are undoubtedly praying for anyone here who does not know Christ, and you're praying, God, give them faith to come to Christ. But I want to tell you, Christians, this is a message for you too. Many of us, as a result of being in Christ, have experienced major life changes. Our conduct has headed in the direction of our standing with Christ. Christ has given us a righteous standing before the Father, and the Holy Spirit has made our heart His home, and He has helped us become more righteous in the way that we live. He produces in us the fruits of the Spirit. And so we make progression in our walk with Christ, and in so doing, we become more moral. We become more righteous. We have grown to be more upstanding. But sadly, we easily become prideful about our morality. We like people admiring us. We like it that people think of us as upstanding. And without recognizing it, we can become as prideful as those Pharisees who are sitting in judgment upon Jesus. Instead of judging Jesus, we judge as people. So-and-so is not as godly as I am. Tim Keller says, We tend to find deficiencies in others where we feel we are strong. Furthermore, we forget the power of sin. We forget how easily we can sin willfully against God. But we all do sin willfully against God, no matter how much we've grown, no matter how upstanding we have become. And so when we're found out, because we've enjoyed this upstanding uh, reputation in front of other people, we run from confession. We run from repentance. Repentance becomes a dirty word. We try to hide and justify ourselves. And at bottom, all such attempts to justify ourselves is really just pride. So the same thing that you might have been praying for unbelievers, you must pray for yourself. You need to remember as much as anybody else, Jesus helps, Jesus heals, Jesus forgives helpless sinners like you and me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we lift up our voices before you because we are lifting up our hearts to you. God, we ask, first of all, that you would humble us, help us always to remember that we are sinners. Even at our best, we have even 
um, to repent of our repentance. We have to repent of our best efforts because all our best efforts, all our good works are like dirty rags in your, your holy, holy, holy presence. Lord God, I do pray if there are any here who uh, are not uh, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for righteousness, if they are seeking uh, to be righteous and moral in their own um, standing uh, without you, God, I pray that you would grant them faith to come to the Lord Jesus as well. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We are deeply humbled. Keep us humble. We ask, as your Spirit works in us, to make us more like Christ. Amen.